Generations Church exists to glorify God in our community, to make disciples of Jesus, and to multiply churches so that the next generation is equipped to glorify God better than we did. Welcome to the Generations Church Podcast. I'm Jeff Ludington, lead pastor here at Generations Church, and I'm flying solo today. It's like walking a tightrope without a net, no one to keep me on track. So I'm glad you're listening. I'm in the series called Questions from the Classroom. This all started about two years ago when I started teaching high school Bible to seniors, 17 years old, 18 years old. And as I was working through a doctrine class about our faith, I asked them a question, what do you want to know about your faith, about the Bible, about theology? Why don't you tell me what those questions are and we'll fit those into the curriculum? So I got hundreds, literally hundreds of questions. And what I really pretty quickly realized was I think their questions are a lot like the same questions I get from all ages adults. And so we began this podcast series answering questions about our faith. So questions from the classroom, we started opening it up to social media and other places. And this is one that came in via email. And the question was, how do churches keep from backsliding into worldly doctrine and practices? Now, there's a word in there that I think only gets used in Christianity, uh, in some, kind of a churchy language, if you will, backsliding. And so it's going backwards is what that means. So how do churches keep from going backwards or getting becoming more like the world? So worldly doctrine and practices was the particular question. Now, we at Generations Church spent a, couple, uh, a few months, the end of last year, working our way through the book of Acts, and, and we were looking at the church inside of Acts. So the church in Jerusalem, the church as it expands to Samaria, the church in Antioch, etc. And what we were doing is kind of studying the church, and it helped us identify what the church, as commissioned by Jesus 2,000 years ago, and what was seemingly healthy, what it looked like, and, and what it did. I'm reading through a series of books written by a group of people called the Nine Marks uh, Nine Marks Organization, uh, and they've kind of referred to these nine marks of what a healthy church looks like. Now, I'm not going to cover them all today, but I do want to. I want to list them: preaching, biblical theology, the gospel, conversion, evangelism, membership, discipline, discipleship, and leadership. Now, I'm going to simplify that list for today, and I'm going to look at three areas. So if the question is, what prevents churches from drifting into becoming worldly organizations in their doctrine and in their practices, those things are very important. So the preaching, obviously, what's the message that is being taught, right? What is the, what is the message preached? You know, biblical theology, what does the church believe and how does it live it out? The gospel, that's something we're going to talk about today. Of course, the gospel, we would think, but it seems to be very absent in churches. When we talk about a distinct mark of the gospel, it's not just this evangelism tool, but it's actually the very power of Jesus that we live in every day. And so we'll talk about that. Conversion is one of them. What does it really look like if you call yourself a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to be converted to Jesus? Evangelism, how do we outreach to others? Membership, what does it look like to belong to a local church? Discipline, how do we correct believers who are maybe living in a way that is antithetical to their faith or contrary to their faith or unhealthy? Discipleship, how do we teach our faith and leadership? Who leads this crazy thing we call the church? And so those nine things um, are really a, a good list of things that we should look for in the church. So how do we prevent the church 
from drifting into becoming worldly organizations or more, let's say this, more impacted by the world, more shaped by the world than by Scripture or Jesus, depending on how you want to word that. And so I'm going to take some of those things that we studied in Acts and some of the Nine March content, I'm going to do a quick, how does the church stay on track? And so if the, if the question is, how, does the, how do we prevent the church from drifting away, then the other, the other way to ask that would be, how do we keep the church on track? So I want to read this ancient, it's about 400 years old, uh, statement uh, in the Belgic Confession, and this is something that many, many Reformed churches hold to. And it says this, the true church can be recognized if it has the following marks. The church engages in pure preaching of the gospel. It makes use of the pure administration of the sacraments as Christ instituted them. It practices church discipline for correcting faults. So those three things are called the three marks of a church. Now, again, nine marks is an organization that exists today. I read that list of nine things. This is the Belgic Confession, often summarized by the three marks of a true church. So the right preaching of the gospel, right, the pure administration of the sacraments, and oddly enough, the third one is church discipline. And now, if you go back to the nine marks guys, one of their marks, also discipline. Now that's probably the thing, if you're listening, that is the most foreign in the modern day church. So we get the gospel, okay, preaching the gospel. Okay, that seems to be like a We'll call it a no-brainer, even though it doesn't always happen. Okay, so the gospel needs to be present. If the gospel is the very power by which we are saved and, and, and that gets us to stand before God rightly, okay, then the gospel. Gospel has to be preached. The second one, the pure administration of the sacraments. So in the Reformed tradition, most Protestant traditions, as it is, have sacrament of baptism and the sacrament of communion. So Communion, often, table, uh, often called the Lord's Table, Lord's Supper, or the Eucharist, uh, but communion, and then baptism. Now, some churches baptize infants, and uh, some wait until they can make a credible profession of faith. We're not going to get into them, but we're going to talk about those things, the sacraments, those things that are, uh, that comes from the word, the Latin word sacrament, which means holy, right? The third one, again, church discipline for correcting faults. So here's what we're going to summarize that. Teaching what is correct, gospel, how to be empowered to live that gospel, sacraments, and how to correct what is wrong in the disciple, we'll call that discipline. Now I want you to, this is probably the key text for the day, 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll look through several verses, but I want to start out with verses 1 and 2. I'm sorry, I'm going to look at several verses in 1 Corinthians 11, starting with 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. Uh, it says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you. So this is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So, Here's what he says, I would remind you, so Christian people, church people, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you. Now, a lot of times in our modern day evangelistic culture or modern day evangelical church, if you will, the gospel is viewed as something that introduces us to Jesus. It is the thing that gets us into relationship with God, and then it kind of parks somewhere behind us. In other words, 
The gospel is the thing that gets the thing started, our faith started, our walk with Jesus started, but then that's it. It just becomes this thing back that we used to talk about. That's not how Paul proclaims the gospel. Here's what he says. I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received. Okay, so when you came to faith, we'll use that. In which you stand. So present-day Christians, the gospel in which you stand, and listen to the third one, and by which you are being saved. Here's what he says. Here's the thing that both introduced you to your relationship with God, but it's the very thing that keeps you in relationship with God and will keep you in relationship with God. Now, I want to use three theological terms. We use them sometimes, not a lot, but justification, sanctification, glorification. All right, so the gospel, or the power of the gospel, justification, the power of the gospel to forgive sin now and at all times. That's justification, making you justified without sin. The power of the gospel to forgive sin now and at all times. Sanctification, in other words, becoming more like Jesus. So sanctification is the power of the gospel that slowly but surely makes us more and more like Jesus over time. So forgiveness of sin now and at all times, making us more like Jesus over time, and glorification is the power of the gospel that will stand us before God, faultless in Christ, at the end of time. And so I want you to think of past tense, what forgave us, present tense, what still forgives us, what is making us, perpetually making us more like Jesus, and in the future, permanently will get us before God, faultless in Christ at the end of time. So there's the gospel, past, present, future. The gospel is the very power in which we live. It's not just the thing that introduces us to Jesus or gets us in relationship with God. It's not just forgiveness. It's also transformation and glorification, right? So gospel. So the power of the gospel. So the first thing that would keep a church on track is a powerful and deep understanding of the gospel message. Now, the second thing would be the sacraments. And I want to read this out of 1 Corinthians 11. Starts in verse 17. It says, the following instructions, this is Paul writing also, again, still to the church in Corinth. He says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. So he says, this isn't good. He says, when you come together, it's not for the better, but for worse. From the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, that's interesting. He talks about those of you that may be genuine in your faith, right? And that this division will show who is genuine and, of course, by the same method, who is not. And so what Paul is saying is that there are true believers and there are those that are not true believers. And one way is that the church should be able to see who that is. And I want you to keep that in mind because, again, there's a right way to follow Jesus and and there's a wrong way to follow Jesus. Or there are right ways to go about following Jesus and there are wrong ways. When we collect people together as the church, the body of the church, when we gather those people and become members of one body, a local church, those people gathered together, being the church, the body of Christ together, a local church, sometimes there's going to be issues, and it, and it helps to understand, okay, what does it mean to truly follow Jesus, and what is it when we're not? So picking up same, ver- uh, same passage, 1 Corinthians 11, I'm going to start in verse 20. It says, now when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. So when you take communion, 
What you're doing is not communion. That's what Paul's saying. He goes on, he says, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry. Another gets drunk. Wait, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? He asks them. You can hear Paul's frustration in this. He says, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Imagine this. Paul, the early first century church leader, the, probably the most prolific leader in the first century church, other than Jesus. And here's what he says. Don't do this. Hey, what you're doing is wrong. This is the negative side of teaching or the don't do this part of teaching. The, uh, he says, hey, when you're gathering for communion, don't do what you're doing. You're doing it wrong. You're leaving people out. There's division inside of you. You're, you're just, you're doing it wrong. Don't do that. I can't commend you in this. He goes on, verse 23. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So Paul moves from the negative side of teaching, like, hey, don't do this, to the positive side, like this is what you're supposed to do. Now, he's talking about the sacrament of communion, but he's also talking about the gospel. This is rooted together. He says, hey, listen, when you're doing communion wrong, and he'll go on to say, no wonder there's some sickness, illness, even death in your church. He goes, you guys have been abusing this sacrament. But then he says this, this is how you do it. When you break the bread, just like I taught you, just like Jesus told me, when he said, this is my body, which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. He took the cup. He said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. So he gives them the sacrament rightly. He's tied it into the gospel. He's teaching them about Jesus. He's giving them this holy moment of communion, this place where heaven and earth kind of come together, this means of grace and communion, both what not to do and what to do. His next line is really important. Verse 26, he says, For as often as you eat of the bread and drink of the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He says, listen, when you do this sacrament rightly, you preach the gospel over the church and over yourself. You proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Now, there's this blessing and, and, and removal of the negative. There's this, hey, when you do the sacraments rightly, they empower you to live your life of faith. That reminds me kind of Acts 2.38, when, uh, when the Jerusalem people, the people of Jerusalem who just 50 days earlier, had shouted for the crucifixion of Jesus. Now here, the empowered church inside this room proclaiming the things about God and, and say, hey, tell me about this. And Peter goes out and he preaches the first gospel message of the church ever. And he goes out and he does this, and the people are convicted in their hearts. And they look at people at Peter, excuse me, the, the people look at Peter, and they say, what must we do to be saved? And Peter says this, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You will receive the promised Spirit. He says, listen, when you are baptized, yeah, it's about 
Jesus. Yes, it is for forgiveness of sins. Again, gospel message. He says, but there's also a promise tied to it that you receive the spirit, the power that Jesus promised to the believer to live differently. So again, we've got these two things. The right preaching of the gospel is this gospel thing, something that evangelists share. And when you say a prayer and come to faith or whatever, however you came to faith, like that gospel stays back there. Or is your gospel robust? Is it the very power in which I live today and the very hope in which I have eternally? Or do we minimize the gospel? When we celebrate the sacraments of communion, do we do it contemplatively and rightly? Do we kind of discipline ourselves, measure ourselves, and make sure that we come before God rightly? When we're baptized, do we go forward? Do we have that baptism be in that moment? Do we receive that gift of the Spirit to empower us to live? So right gospel, pure administration of the sacraments. Now this same passage in 1 Corinthians 11 goes on, Verse 27, he says, Whoever therefore eats of the bread and drinks of the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body and eats and drinks judgment on himself, that is why many of you are weak and ill, like I just said earlier. Some have even died, just like I said. Like he says this, you guys are abusing the sacraments. You're not taking them purely. You're not doing them right. In fact, you're dishonoring Jesus. And there's a penalty to that, he says. Imagine that. I know that's not talked about in churches very often today. But clear as day, Paul gives a warning about taking communion wrongly. There's a blessing in the sacraments, a strengthening, a means of grace in celebrating the things that Jesus has given us to empower us for ministry. Baptism once communion regularly, right? Baptism, the promise of the Spirit, communion, strength, nourishment in our faith. Now that passage continues. He says this, Paul writes again, he says, verse 31 and 32, but if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. So he's saying, listen, if we had discerned ourselves rightly before taking communion, we wouldn't be judged by God. Like if we had just slowed down, done it right. But he goes on, verse 32, But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. He says, listen, God disciplines us, right? When we are disciplined, there's a purpose that we would not be condemned along with the world, that we would be different, that we would be lifted above, that we would be forgiven, that we would be gods. So here's what we have, a right understanding, a right preaching of the gospel, sacraments that are done purely, rightly, empowering the believer for the life lived in faith, and discipline. Paul's entire message here is a discipline of the church. He is disciplining the members of the Corinthian church. He is teaching them, training them, correcting them, and telling them, listen, there's been discipline. God has judged some of you for this. You see, church discipline is the thing that is so odd in our culture. It is so not frequently done or seen. And and here's why, if we're really honest, churches today are more worried about, you know, how many people showed up or how many dollars did we get or or whatever. And 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 I even even the churches that aren't emphasizing that, the struggle is, hey, we're barely making it. If we 
really lean into this person who's doing this thing, which is destroying their lives. If we, if we really confront them, what if they leave? Well, what if they're our biggest giver? Or what if they take their family? Oh, their family's got so many friends here. See, church discipline is meant to be with a place, the church, the people, discipline one another. And the leadership is to be trusted to discipline the church. Imagine a place where, or a family where, parents don't discipline their children. And I know we can all see it. We've seen families that don't, and we see the effects on kids. Churches are the same thing. Church discipline is the process of walking in and caring enough for someone that the elders of a church or a pastor of a church would go to someone and say, listen, what you're doing is destructive in your life. It's hurting you. It's hurting others. And you need to stop. Now, we know in a church culture where you can just drive away, go down to the church down the street, and you can show up there, start attending there, giving there, serving there. Most of them will never even ask you about the church you came from. It's sad, but it's true. You can do that. You can just mosey on down the way and do something new. Now, so that's why church discipline is probably disappearing, but it is such a huge part of what it means to be a part of the church. So the question today was, how do churches stay on track doctrinally? and not drift, not get theologically more like the world or practically more like the world. Well, here's how they do it. They stay in a robust and powerful gospel. They preach a gospel that isn't just about evangelism. It's justification, yes, forgiveness, but it's also sanctification, becoming more like Jesus over and over, day by day, and glorification and ultimate realization of the gospel, the kingdom, Jesus' reign right here on earth. It's the pure administration of the sacraments. It is making sure, hey, do we do communion? Are we disciplining and judging our hearts before we go forward and take communion? Are we having a pure administration of baptism, that the Spirit might be poured out on people? And are we willing to have the hard conversations when people or churches are off track and in sin? So right gospel, pure sacraments, and church discipline. That has been around for hundreds of years as the way that the church stays on track. Now, there's much more to that, and we're going to cover some different things in upcoming series. But for now, those three things, if you're looking for a church, look for a church that preaches the gospel powerfully, administers the sacraments carefully, cautiously, purely, and is willing to call out each and every person so that they can live the most holy, on-track, sanctified lives for Jesus and win others to the faith. Here's, I'll leave you this last little tidbit. The Bible talks about discipline about 60 plus times. The Bible talks about baptism about half the, 34 times. Twice as much it talks about discipline than it does baptism. And yet, you are twice as likely to get talked to about baptism today in a church than you ever would be to be disciplined for something. Consider that fact. Highly likely to get one, not the other, and yet the Bible speaks to one twice as much. Let that sit in. Are you in a church that is willing to work with you, to walk with you, and to call you out when you need to be told, hey, this isn't your best. This isn't what God's best is for you. Well, God bless you. I hope that you enjoyed this this episode. I pray that you would share this with others. I hope that you are well. And if you have questions, 
If we can pray for you, if we can answer your questions before we wrap this series up, you can email us at questions at generations.email. Thank you. <laughs>